Hello and welcome back to the Middling Along podcast. I'm your host, Emma Thomas, and this time joining me is Karina Antrim, registered nutritionist and executive coach and author of Fix Your Fatigue. Karina is hugely passionate about health and well-being after her own health struggles led her to seek out naturopathic practices. After being diagnosed with IBS, chronic fatigue syndrome and Lyme disease, Karina tried out a multitude of tests, diets, health practices, different foods and herbs to try and combat her debilitating symptoms, which at times led her to being hospitalised. She's now recovered, having made numerous changes to her diet and lifestyle, but is fully aware that consistency and continuity is key. Prior to becoming a nutritionist, she spent 15 years working as an HR leader for organisations like the Boston Consulting Group and Deloitte, and she studied biomedicine at the Institute of Optimum Nutrition and is currently a member of three governing bodies in the industry, BANT, ANP, CNHC. She's also a member of the Institute of Functional Medicine based in the US and a management graduate from Leeds University Business School. Welcome to the podcast, Karina. Thank you very much for having me, Emma. So there can't be many people, I guess, who, who have that sort of triple threat of IBS, chronic fatigue syndrome and Lyme disease. That's particularly unlucky. It is, yes. But actually, what's quite interesting is the more people I see in my clinic, the more is there is a direct correlation between people suffering with fatigue and irritable bowel syndrome. And the scientific research suggests that you're more likely, if you've got fatigue, to have an irritable bowel. So actually, yes, I was unlucky to get that triad of those three different, I suppose, illnesses. Mm. However, actually, I'm seeing it becoming increasingly common. It's a correlation. Like, absolutely. Yes. Not so much Lyme disease. Lyme disease is a little bit more sort of out there and slightly different. And that really did affect me quite a bit. Mm. Um, I'm still, I suppose, wondering on the Lyme front whether... I was correctly diagnosed. It's really difficult to diagnose Lyme disease. There's certain laboratories in Germany where you can actually get the diagnosis. I never went to one of those. I went to a specialist in London. And I still always question, did I get any false positives? You know, mm. you know what, what was going on there? I'm still not 100% sure that was the case. But regardless of what I had, the same nutrition and lifestyle interventions, you know, you have to implement in your lifestyle. And I generally believe everybody should just be following this really sort of um, good, healthy lifestyle, regardless of what you have, because it's so fundamentally important for optimal well-being, which is, you know, good, good sleep, good diet, good nutrition, all the fundamental basics everybody should just be doing on a day to day basis anyway. So what's what's the difference between sort of a, a normal level of tiredness because you know most yeah. of us are, are busy we're juggling um you know I, I used to joke when we had two young kids with my husband you know we would have a literally a competition say who was the most tired and I frankly I would normally win um but what's the difference between that sort of normal tiredness and fatigue I think normal tiredness you know if you're getting to the end of the day and you're feeling a little bit exhausted but you've been working from you know nine to five you come home you cook your kids dinner things like that, you know, you're going to feel a little bit fatigued because your day ultimately has been very busy. I think if you're tired all day, every day and feeling exhausted all day, every day with no real apparent reason, that's when I think it needs to be explored. And for me, when I look back at 2014, which my worst period of real fatigue, mm. there wasn't really a reason. I didn't have children at the time. You know, I wasn't sleep deprived. Um, you know, I wasn't going through a sleep deprivation period with children. And I look back and I think actually there was no real reason, you know, and I think a lot of women, they go through these milestones in life, things like, you know, childbirth and, you know, perimenopause, menopause, you know, pregnancy, all these milestones in life typically are attributed to a little bit of fatigue that, you know, they do contribute to it, which is kind of normal. But I think if there's no real reason it's been going on for six months or longer, 
Typically, that's when you reach the sort of chronic fatigue stage and you have to go to the doctors and get support. However, my personal view is if your tiredness has been lasting, say, three to four weeks with no real cause, I would go and get some bloods done absolutely at your doctor's as the, as the first port of call. Mm. Try and get in there and tackle it as early as possible absolutely. if you're struggling and you don't know why. And we never mm. like to think, I think, there's something sinister going on. But we know now, obviously, one in two get, do get cancer. And, you know, one of the first symptoms of cancers are fatigue. So we do have to be incredibly careful, I think. When we do feel tired and exhausted with no real reason, we do have to go and get it explored quite quickly and, you know, take action, definitely take action. Mm. So um, you talk in the book about uh, something called energy leaks. Can you explain a bit more about some of some of those common ones that that you you unpack in the book? Yes, sure. No problem. So energy leaks are things like really when you're draining all energy um, without any sort of, you know, you have no energy without any real gain which might sound a bit strange, but it's, it's in a way, I use the analogy in a book of a sort of a bowl where energy is actually seeping out of the holes and you don't really know kind of why your energy is actually leaking. And I think it's really fundamentally important for people to understand, you know, where is your energy going on a day-to-day basis? And it might sound basic, but for me, when I look back, I was actually draining my own energy through my own habits hugely. Mm. Things like, you know, the poor diet, the stress, the overthinking, you know, it's incredible. Our brain uses 20% of our energy. Yeah, we don't we don't think about it at all, do we? It's kind of this invisible, uh, yeah, you're just running down the, the meter invisibly. Absolutely. If you're, if you're scrolling on social media, you're spending too much time on tech, you're actually draining your own brain energy, leading, leading to mm. cognitive fatigue. So I think we ultimately have to almost do a, sort of a self-check and a review of our own habits to think about, well, actually, when, where is our energy leaking? And my energy was also leaking from things like, seeing certain people and being in certain environments in the workplace and actually the workplace environment wasn't right for me so I was going to work feeling drained from the moment I stepped through a door because it wasn't the right job for me Mm. and I wasn't surrounded by the right people and the job wasn't in line with my values so of course no wonder why I'd start off my days with absolutely zero energy so I think that the obvious energy leaks are things like stress you know if you've gone through a time of your life where there's a bereavement or a trauma that's happening like a potential divorce they're kind of very obvious energy leaks you know you're going to feel fatigued after these kind of big life I call them life quakes in the book um and we all go through these life quakes in life you know life can be challenging at times and that that can lead to fatigue however there's the, the sort of insidious not obvious energy leaks so things like the social media scrolling things like boredom People don't realize that sometimes when you're bored, it's an energy leap because actually you're not utilizing your creativity and you're sitting there in a sedentary state, not really doing much movement. And that can lead you to feeling very low in energy. So it's about looking and sense checking and thinking about, well, how are you spending your days and your time and and doing a review and making sure that you're ultimately trying to create as much energy throughout the day as you can. Um, so yes, so that, that's that's kind of my analogy. I would say of, of an energy leak. It's really important that people ask themselves the questions of, you know, when do you have the most energy at which times of the day? Um, where where are you getting your energy from, and where is your energy leaking from? And trying to rectify that with solutions and rectifying your habits. Hmm. And the the sort of the science geek in me enjoyed all of the kind of the biology that you put in there, talking about kind of your mitochondria and how our energy is actually manufactured I guess um, and and the ways that we can help support that especially through sort of nutrition so I mean in terms of things like the micronutrients why are they so critical for that sort of biological process and and yeah how, how do we kind of help support that yeah so 
our mitochondria are absolutely key to our energy production process. And for anybody listening who doesn't know what mitochondria are, they're organelles within our cell that ultimately produce our energy. Um, and they're little batteries in our cells and they produce something called adenosine triphosphate, which is ATP. Now, the, the mitochondria are kind of sensitive little things, really. They get dysregulated really easily. Mm. And so things like sugar consumption you know, can really dysregulate our mitochondria, things like stress. And actually, the interesting thing about stress, if you're a bit of a, a geek here, is that actually the mitochondria change shape under stress. So they almost look like, I've seen a slide recently, which I found absolutely fascinating, which was like a boomerang. So if you can imagine the mitochondria looking like a boomerang, they changed into like kidney beans, lots of little kidney beans. They actually changed size squished. and shape much smaller. Exactly. Squished by stress. <laughs> Oh, I love that. I should have put that in my book as a line, shouldn't I? I love that. Squish by stress. But if you think about that, I suppose just you know, using a bit of common sense, obviously their surface area has reduced. You're going to get less mitochondria, so you're going to produce less energy. So actually the impact of stress on our cells and our cellular production of, of our energy is, is huge. So and is that from the cortisol that we're producing when we're stressed? I, I think so, potentially. But I think there's all... I don't actually know the answer to that. And the reason being is that with our mitochondria at the moment... A lot of the scientific research is very much in its infancy. Mm. So we know they change size and shape, but we're still not 100% sure as to why all the reasons as to why this might be happening. Um, but if I find any research, I'm very, very happy to share it with you. Um, but I think also in terms of other things that affect our mitochondria, things like toxin exposure. So we know that, again, they dysregulate with, with the toxins. So things like pesticides, molds, you know, if you have mold in your home, please, please, please make sure you get somebody around to come and look at it. Mold, including things like spores can be really, really uh, detrimental for our health. Um, things like plastics, you know, if you're wrapping your food in plastics, again, that can dysregulate our mitochondria. Personal hygiene products like deodorants, you know, your skincare, your makeup, cleaning products, to so try and make sure you're switching to non-toxic products. So our mitochondria are very sensitive. They can dysregulate really easily. And it's really, really important that we make sure that we are reviewing not only our environment, but also what we eat, because obviously one of the primary functions of mitochondria is to oxidize our fats, carbohydrates and amino acids. So, again, what we eat is going to affect the amount of energy that we produce. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so mitochondria are key. Years ago, I didn't even think that my my tiredness and fatigue might have been linked with mitochondrial dysfunction. It's mm. just something that none of us, I don't think, really think about. Well, it's such, at such a microscopic level, isn't it? That sort of cellular level. You, it's it's so far removed from what we're... Because it's not particularly mainstream at the moment. And there's not much that we know about the mitochondria, you know, in terms of energy production. You know, it's still very much, as I said, the, the, the research is very much in its infancy. So I think over the next couple of years, a little bit like the sort of, you know, resurgence of the gut microbiome at the moment, I think the mitochondria are going to be far more prevalent and there's going to be a lot more people talking about it in, in the press because it is very, very important for our energy production. Mm. So if anyone's listening and they have heard of functional medicine or they've not heard of it, what is it? How does it differ from traditional medicine and why is that important? Yes. So obviously we have in this country a sort of what I would call a conventional medicine model, which is basically where you feel symptoms you go to your GP, you have between five and seven minutes for your GP to diagnose you. Mm. And typically you get a diagnosis pretty quick and probably some medication like maybe some antibiotics or some or some sort of you know, antidepressants or something. Um, I believe 
um, and this is quite a controversial view, that this, this model in our country at the moment is completely and utterly flawed. This is not the fault of the doctors. This is just that actually the medicine world hasn't really changed that much in this country for hundreds of years, and it needs to. What functional medicine does, which I think is really, really interesting, um, is that it really tries to identify the root cause as to why you're feeling the way you're feeling. And that means seeing the body as a whole, treating the person as a whole person, and all the systems in the body are completely interconnected. And so what ultimately we want to do is we want to look at the person and look at their case history all the way back from birth, because it's unbelievable what you can find out, even from the birth that somebody had, you know, whether they were breastfed, whether they were bottle fed, whether they had a C-section, whether they were had a natural delivery. And then you look through all the triggering events that have occurred in somebody's lifetime at different stages and up to the present day. And you form this really holistic, wonderful picture of somebody's health. Because then you can say, okay, that's happened. They've had that virus back then. Okay, mm. they've got really poor gut health. And you start to pull together, it's almost like a jigsaw. But, you know, for example, in my clinic, we do this over sort of two hours. It's an initial consultation after complete a very full in-depth uh, questionnaire using a really fantastic nutrition platform. And I think that this is the model going forwards. And I think doctors and nutritionists need to work more synergistically together to then create a bespoke, personalised plan for the client. You're not just slapping a sticking plaster over the wound and hoping it gets better. Mm. Because I think that's ultimately what we do. But everybody, we know the importance now of personalised nutrition because everybody has completely different DNA. We're all biochemically unique. And we also react to different nutrients and different medications completely differently. So I think the model needs to change in this country. I don't know how. I think there's a massive issue, obviously, as we know, with our NHS system at the moment. I don't, And there's obviously a funding issue. But I think that's where practitioners like myself come in, where we're hoping to try and make an impact in a really small way using the principles of functional medicine. And I'd like to see that more prevalent going forward as well. Um, so why did you decide to, to write the book? And, and uh, can you tell us a bit more about how it can help someone who's really, really fatigued? And I think uh, you've got this lovely sort of hack at the end of each chapter, which is too tired, didn't read, which is essentially just a sort of half page summary. So if someone is really, really struggling and they you know so fatigued that, that maybe even just reading a book isn't, you know, doesn't seem achievable, that they can at least go in and, and get the headline points. But um, yeah, how, how's the book designed to work? Yeah, so um, so the reason for me writing the book is back when I was really unwell in 2014, where I basically had a complete mind-body disconnect. I was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome. I remember trying to find a book to help me because I needed some sort of support. At the time, doctors couldn't diagnose me. All my bloods were normal. I was like, I know I'm not right. I need to mm. investigate myself. There was nothing at the time in the market at all. And still in the last couple of years, I haven't been able to find anything that really resonated with me where I could read a book that was simple, easy to digest science, that was broken down in a way that I could understand that I felt in a way was like supportive tone in a really nice style. Mm. It's not lecturing me going, you've no, done this it's wrong. it's not lecturing me and it's not really heavy. And also I think we have to always put ourselves in, in the mindsets of somebody who's incredibly tired and exhausted. You can't really absorb much information. And I remember mm. at the time, as I said, my brain was cognitively really depleted. So I was struggling to get information in. And I just wrote the book in a way that I thought I'd love it to be designed in a way that was really easy for people to read. And that's why you rightly mentioned at the end of each chapter, there's a bit saying too tired, didn't read. 
at the very back, I, I break down the science and I have one question and one action because the reflective question is trying to get you to start really thinking about the reasons why you might be fatigued and you've got sort of low energy. But also the science element is to give you a bit of a breakdown as to why, you know, you know, from a scientific perspective, something might be happening to your body and mind. And then also the one action, because the one action you want to feel immediately after you write a, you know, you read a chapter or you've, you've finished a book, that you can take a couple of actions very, very quickly. Mm. And not feel overwhelmed. <laughs> exactly, not feel overwhelmed. And I think when you move yourself from A to B, instantly you feel a sense of achievement and it almost that creates that sort of you know energy surge doesn't it it makes you feel like you're moving forward you know you're trying to find a solution to how you're feeling so the book is is brilliant for that and it's designed and you know kind of the first half of the book is about um really being self-reflective as i mentioned trying to figure out the root cause the second half is a five-step plan and it's basically the first part is about big nutrition so brain immune and gut the second is a deeper dive into the gut the third is about sleep and exercise Fourth is supplementation, which I know is highly controversial at the moment, but I believe in the power of supplements hugely. Personally, for me, they've been, you know, hugely effective. And the fifth is about, you know, how you can harness the power of your brain and not drain your brain energy. Because so many of us, as I mentioned, drain our brain energy. So that's my five steps. And I found following these five steps for me has been hugely transformative. Because if you want to make changes, it's not just about nutrition. You have to change everything it's complex because you were talking about that sort of initial sort of reflective um section and actually for i guess for most people it it may not be as simple as one particular cause of the fatigue it's a multifactorial thing so picking that apart sometimes might you know be a little bit of work hard work for them but once you've figured that figured that out then you can think about the next step of addressing those different factors Absolutely. And I hope the questions in my book get people to have a few light bulb moments where they're like, oh, I didn't like think about that. Oh, yes, actually, it could be that. You know, it's, it's getting people to really reflect on what might be going on because we live our lives, I think, sometimes, Emma, on autopilot. You know, we're mm. all so busy, you know, kind of in this sort of rat race on a hamster wheel. We never really get the chance to sort of sit down and self-reflect. So I hope the book will provide the opportunity for people to be able to do that. Yeah. Definitely. And as you say, that having those sort of simple steps to to kind of handhold you through is, is really helpful. You talk um, a little bit as well about nudge theory, which is something um, a, a friend of mine is always talking about. So can you explain what nudge theory is and how you're putting it into practice here in the book? Yeah, no problem at all. So um, there's, there was a guy who I read about when I was sort of researching a book called Richard Thaler, and he actually won a sort of Nobel Prize for his sort of research on nudging. And basically what nudging is, is it's it's trying to get people to make the right choices without using any kind of economic initiative. So if you, for example, go into your supermarket, you know, you typically, it drives me insane because I'm one of those people sometimes <laughs> that give in. You know, you get to the end of the aisle and there's always some really lovely chocolate, you know, you're going to absolutely love to eat. And it's just as you're paying because you think, oh, I'll just pop it while I'm waiting into my basket. That's an example of nudging. It's encouraging the consumer to buy something which ordinarily they perhaps may not buy. And actually, we can we can use this sort of, I suppose, the applications of nudges in our daily lives. Um, and there's a series of different sort of nudges that we can use. So, for example, there's cognitive nudges, which basically is is making us make the right healthy choices. There's a nudge called the effective nudges, 
which is about how we can make sure that we're making healthy food sound more exciting. So I'll give you a quick example. Like, you know, typically if you go to, you know, a healthy food restaurant, you know, if it says, oh, you know, there's a bowl of kale, you might not be that excited. But however, if the kales were perhaps dressed with, you know, pomegranates and feta and some, you know, lovely dressing, you might be more enticed to actually try that food stuff. And then there's there's something, you know, called, called behavioral nudges, again, which is trying to persuade you to make the right choice. And I suppose if we apply this to kind of our homes, you know, if we think about it, the only way we're going to be successful is if we really implement the right daily habits into our daily routines. Mm-hmm. And so there's one called, you know, convenience enhancement. It's all about enhancing your daily life. And you have to make it obvious and easy. So convenience enhancement, so things like, you know, hiding sugary foods at the back of the cupboard to make it not obvious. You know, leaving your gym kit out the night before. Yeah, I quite often do that one. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, having nutritious snacks in your bag all the time so you don't suddenly rush and think, I'm starving, I'm going to grab that chocolate bar. So things like that can be really, really powerful. And then, of course, there's things like size enhancements, and that's about reducing ultimately the sort of portion size. You know, you might use a different plate or you might use a smaller glass or opting for a mini chocolate bar rather than, you know, a full-size family bar. Mm. How do I get myself to drink more water? That's my biggie. <laughs> oh, so, okay. So in terms of drinking water, I actually write a little bit of book about, it depends if you, do you like water? I do. I like it really cold. So what I've started doing, because we're recording this and it's quite warm, um, is to put a big bottle of water in the fridge because I like it really, really cold. Okay. Because a lot of people in my, that I see in clinic, the problem they have with water is they actually don't like the taste of water, which is actually a hugely common problem, more, mm. more common than you actually realise. And actually, one thing that you can do is actually making, I put in a book about making homemade bellinis. You know, if you just get a couple of raspberries and you bash them down, or, you know, so fill it with cucumber and slice of lemon, you can actually make bellinis or pims, which are just water with like crushed up fruit, but it makes it makes a real difference to taste. Mm. And actually, you're adding in addition, additional antioxidants, and, and, you know, obviously fruit is incredibly yeah. fine. Better than buying flavoured water from the shop that's probably got yeah, crap in it <laughs> it's actually got sugar then of course that causes blood sugar dysregulation so actually no you want to try and avoid that but things like that can obviously enhance the quality of your water and then there's something called also hedonic hedonic uh, enhancements which basically are about heightening the pleasure of what you're eating because for a lot of people as well healthy food a lot of people don't enjoy healthy food you know they've become mm. so addicted to the sugary stuff or the unhealthy stuff um that actually they want to um you know you know kind of they, they don't enjoy kind of looking at healthy plate of food if it's full of kind of like vibrant color but actually things like you know taking strawberries and dipping them in an antioxidant rich chocolate um you know changing your normal running routine booking in some like you time, all those things can also really enhance um, kind of, you know, the way you feel. And it's about heightening pleasure for sort of healthy habits to make you want to continue to do it. Mm. So that's in essence, nudge theory. It's definitely helped me because now I rearrange my cupboards and I make sure everything's easy and obvious. So I make sure I stick to my, my, my sort of um, healthy lifestyle. Yeah, I think you say even in the book, even just sort of put, putting the healthier stuff at the front of the fridge. So it's right there when you open the door. Yes. And I also do things like nutrient toppers where I've now got glass jars with all my nuts and my seeds and my goji berries and my, you know, my flax seed. And, and I just put them out. So on the table in the morning for breakfast and even my two year old son helps himself to these and pops them on his cereal because you're ultimately what you're trying to do is add in as many nutrients as possible. And I'm a big believer in not stripping out nutrients. I want to put as many nutrients in into food as I can. And nutrient toppers are a great way to do that. 
And I guess if you're mixing your own, um, it doesn't necessarily have to be extremely expensive, you know, that if you're keeping it in an airtight jar, it should keep for a reasonable amount of time and you can sort of... Exactly. Yes, exactly, Emma. So, Karina, we talked a little bit about micronutrients, um, but can we unpack perhaps a little bit more about what the reasons are that somebody maybe might not be um, absorbing micronutrients from, from their diet? And also, you know, why we might think about supplementing, because obviously, you know, that's that can be expensive and it can be a bit confusing as to know exactly what supplements to take. Yeah, sure. No problem. So I think what's important to understand is, is why we have a depletion of our micronutrients currently in our bodies. And actually, it's things like alcohol and smoking and antibiotics and stress actually that hinder the absorption and the uptake of your micronutrients, so of your vitamins and minerals. And actually, a lot of our micronutrients are really important for the energy production process. You know, and, you know, if we think about macronutrients, our carbs, fats and protein versus our micronutrients, we actually need smaller amounts of our micronutrients, but they're no less important. They're incredibly critical. Um, And so a lot of also the the micronutrients that we consume, you know, we can't we don't make them in our bodies. So we that's why they're referred to as essential nutrients. We actually have to get them from the food that we eat. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're not eating a nutritious diet, you're not going to be getting the micronutrients and if you've also got absorption issues, then you've got a sort of a double, double problem. Um, so what I would suggest is in these instances, supplementation can become really important, especially if you've been known or you've been tested to have a deficiency in, say, for example, iron or magnesium or zinc or vitamin D, which are all really crucial um, vitamins and minerals for this sort of energy production process. Um and also, if we think about just generally in our in our diets at the moment, you know, the soil quality at the moment is is mineral poor. Um, you know, if we think about the transportation process going from A to B, you know, you lose a lot of nutrients in our food through that transportation process. And so I suppose the food that we eat, you know, is not the same quality as it was, say, 50 years ago, also from things like farming methods and pesticides. So it's really important that we do supplement by also I'm very conscious of budgets for people you know Mm. wellness can sometimes be expensive and it's not accessible to everybody so what I would say is it's just very very simply if you're looking at your plate of food if it's a beige plate of food make sure you're actually including a lot of sort of um, polyphenol and phytonutrient rich colorful foods because that's ultimately what contain your micronutrients your antioxidants which are really important for you and it's just even if you can include, you know, a green vegetable or just something on your plate that adds that color, that that will be really important. And we also know, as, as, as you said, from scientific research that, you know, we have to eat 30 plants a week, ideally. And that's, you know, herbs, spices, fruits, veg, you know, legumes, pulses. Um, and that ultimately also creates a much healthier, happier gut as well. It, it actually it, it, it hinders, it stops something called dysbiosis, which is where there's an imbalance of good and bad bacteria in the gut. We ultimately want to populate the gut with more good bacteria than bad bacteria. And even just the scientific research, just even just a teaspoon of spices a day can actually change the composition of the gut microbiome. And that's super latest research. So it can just be really tiny micro changes that you're including day to day. To have a, to have an impact, um, but if you can afford a supplement, but you know you you can't afford to buy you know say two or three for the energy production process, then just focus on getting a really good quality multivitamin, um, and that's a good starting point for anybody. I would say. 
And so just to, to finish up, uh, if somebody is, you know, really, really struggling right now, what, what's the what's the one quick thing, the first thing that you would suggest that they focus on? Gosh, there's, there's, there's so many things. And there's also, you know, it, for each person, people react differently to each kind of like the one thing that they could do. But what I would say is very, very simply, is just reduce your pace. If you're really exhausted and really tired, the first thing you should do is reduce your pace and outsource anything that you can to take some rest. Because when ultimately you rest, that's when you can start to make some decisions. You can start thinking about what support or help you might need. But I would say that's the first thing you absolutely should do is just reduce your pace. Mm, slow down um, the hamster wheel a bit to get a bit exactly. of headspace. <laughs> it doesn't cost any money. Exactly. It doesn't cost any money. It doesn't it doesn't create any stress about ringing somebody or, and of course then you might want to book a, um, an appointment to see your doctor or a nutritionist to try and get some advice there. But that's what I would say is the first thing that you should be doing. Great. Thank you so much for coming to chat to us. Uh, Fix Your Fatigue is out and it's published by, oh, it says Penguin on the spine. <laughs> which, which it is. Penguin, is it? Random House. Penguin Random House. Yeah. Um, I'll pop a link in the show notes to uh, where people can find you at your practice and also to buy the book and find you on Instagram. Thank you so Brilliant. much. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Emma. You've been listening to the Middling Along podcast. Do remember to subscribe to be notified when our next episode is live. And why not visit the blog at www.middlingalong.com to sign up to my newsletter as well. I do hope you enjoyed listening today. If you did, I'd be really grateful if you would consider leaving a short review as that helps people find the podcast and helps get it noticed. Hope you can join us next time. Goodbye for now.